Chapter forty three of Lorna Doone. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Daisy fifty five. Lorna Doone by R. D. Blackmore. Chapter forty three. Not too soon. When I started on my road across the hills and valleys, which now were pretty much alike, the utmost I could hope to do was to gain the crest of hills and look into the Doom Glen. Hence I might at least describe whether Lorna still was safe by the six nests still remaining and the view of the captain's house. When I was come to the open country, far beyond the sheltered homestead, and in the full blunt of the wind, the keen blast of the cold broke on me, and the mighty breath of snow. Moor and highland, field and common, cliff and vale, and watercrust, over all the rolling folds of misty white were flung. There was nothing square or jagged left, there was nothing perpendicular, all the rugged lines were eased, and all the breaches smoothly curved. Curves and mounds and rounded heavens took the place of rock and stump, and all the country looked as if a woman's hand had been on it. Through the sparkling breath of white, which seemed to glance my eyes away, and outside the humps of laden trees, bowing their backs like a woodman, I contrived to get along, half sliding and half walking, in places where a plain shotted man must have sunk, and waited freezing till the thaw could come to him. For although there had been such violent frost, every night upon the snow, the snow itself, having never thawed, even for an hour, had never coated over. Hence it was as soft and light as if all had fallen yesterday, in places where no drift had been, but rather off than on to them, three feet was the least of depth, but where the wind had chased it round, or in a draught led like a funnel, or anything opposed it, there you might very safely say that it ran up to twenty feet, or thirty, or even fifty, and I believe sometimes a hundred. At last I got to my spy hill, as I had been begun to call it although I never should have known it but for what it looked on. And even to know this last again required all the eyes of love, so ever sharp and vigilant, For all the beautiful Glen Dune, shaped from out the mountains, as if on purpose for the dunes, and looking in the summertime like a sharp-cut vase of green, now was besnowed half up the sides, and at either end so, that it was more like the white basins wherein we boil plum puddings. Not a patch of grass was there, not a black branch of a tree, all was white, and the little river flowed beneath an arch of snow, if it managed to flow at all. Now this was a great surprise to me, not only because I believed Glen Doone to be a place outside our frost, but also because I thought perhaps that it was quite impossible to be cold near Lorna, and now it struck me all at once that perhaps her eel was frozen, as mine had been for the last three weeks, with crying embers around it, and perhaps her window would not shut any more than mine would, and perhaps she wanted blankets. This idea worked me up to such a chill of sympathy that seeing no dunes now about, and doubting if any guns would go off in this state of the weather, 
and knowing that no man could catch me up except with shoes like mine, I even resolved to slide the cliffs and bravely go to Lorna. It helped me much of this in this resolve that the snow came on again thick enough to blind a man who had not spent his time among it, as I had done for days and days. Therefore I took my neat's foot oil, which now was clogged like honey, and rubbed it hard into my leg joints so far as I could reach them, and then I set my back and elbows well against the snowdrift, hanging far down the cliff, and saying some of the Lord's Prayer, threw myself on Providence. Before there was time to think or dreamed, I landed very beautifully upon a ridge of run-up snow in a quiet corner. My good shoes, or boots, preserved me from going far beneath it, though one of them was sadly stained, where a grub had gnawed the ash in the early summer time. Having set myself all right, and being in good spirits, I made boldly across the valley, where the snow was furrowed hard, being now afraid of nobody. If Lorna had looked out of the window, she would not have known me, with those boots upon my feet, and a well-clean sheepskin over me, bearing my own, J.R., in red, just between my shoulders, but covered now in snowflakes. The house was partly drifted up, though not so much as ours was, and I crossed the little stream almost without knowing that it was under me. At first, being pretty safe from interference from the other huts, by virtue of the blinding snow and the difficulty of walking, I examined all the windows, but these were coated so with ice, like ferns and flowers and dazzling stars, that no one could so much as guess what might be inside of them. Moreover, I was afraid of prying narrowly into them, as it was not a proper thing where a maiden might be, only I wanted to know just this, whether she were there or not. Taking nothing by this movement, I was forced, much against my will, to venture to the door and knock in a hesitating manner, not being sure but what my answer might be the mouth of carbine. However, it was not so, for I heard a pattering of feet and a whispering going on, and then a shrill voice through the keyhole asking, Who's there? Only me, John Reed, I answered, upon which I heard a little laughter and a little sobbing or something that was like it, and then the door was opened about a couple of inches with a bar behind it still, and then the little voice went on. Put thy finger in, young man, with the old ring on it. But mind thee, if it be the wrong one, thou shalt never draw it back again laughing at Gwenny's mighty threat, I showed my finger in the opening, upon which she let me in, and barred the door again like lightning. What is the meaning of all this, Gwenny? I asked, as I slipped about on the floor, for I could not stand there firmly with my great snowshoes on. Man and enough, and bad man and too, the Cornish girl made answer. Us be shut in here and starving, and don't let nobody upon us. I wish they were good to eat, young man. I can manage most of thee. I was so frightened by her eyes, full of wolfish hunger, 
that I could only say, Good God! Having never seen the like before, then drew I forth a large piece of bread, which I had brought in case of accidents, and placed it in her hands. She leaped at it as a starving dog leaps at sight of a sufferer, and she set her teeth in it, and then withheld it from her lips with something very like an oath at her own vile greediness, and then away around the corner with it, no doubt for her young mistress. I meanwhile was occupied to the best of my ability in taking my snowshoes off, yet wondering how much within myself why Lorna did not come to me. But presently I knew the cause, for Gwenny called me, and I ran and found my darling quite unable to say so much as, John, how are you? Between the hunger and the cold and the excitement of my coming, she had fainted away and lay back in a chair, as white as the snow around us. In betwixt her delicate lips, Gwenny was thrusting with all her strength the hard brown crust of the rye bread which she had snatched from me so. Get water or get snow, I said. Don't you know what fainting is, you very stupid child? Never heard of Cornwall, she answered trusting still to the bread beyond the same as bleeding it will be directly if you go on squeezing away with that crust so eat a piece i got some more leave my darling now to me hearing that i had some more the starving girl could resist no longer but tore it in two and has swallowed half before i had coaxed my lorna back to sense and hope and joy and love I never expected to see you again. I had made up my mind to die, John, and to die without your knowing it. As I repelled this fearful thought in a manner highly fortifying, the tender hue flowed back again into her famous lips and cheeks, and a softer brilliance glistened from the depth of her dark eyes. She gave me one little shrunken hand, and I could not help a tear for it. After all, Mistress Lorna, I said, pretending to be gay, for a smile might do her good. You do not love me as Guinea does, for she even wanted to eat me. <laughs> and shall, afore I have done, young man, Guinea answered laughing. You come in here with them red chicks and make us think of sirloin. Eat up your old bit of brown bread, Guinea. It is not good enough for your mistress, bless her heart. I have something here such as she never tasted the like of, being in such appetite. Look here, Lorna, smell it first. I have had it ever since twelfth day, and kept it all the time for you. Annie made it. That is enough to warrant it good cooking and then I showed my great mince pie in a bag of tissue paper, and I told them how the mince meat was made of golden pippins, finely shred with the undercut of the sirloin, and spiced and fruit accordingly, and far beyond my knowledge. But Lorna would not touch a morsel until she had thanked God for it, and given me the kindest kiss, and put a piece in Gwenny's mouth. I have eaten many things myself with very great enjoyment and keen perception of their merits, and some thanks to God for them, 
but I never did enjoy a thing that has found its way between my own lips, half or even a quarter, as much as I now enjoy holding and beholding Lorna, sitting proudly upwards, to show that she was faint no more, entering into that mince pie and moving all her pearls of teeth inside her little mouth-place, exactly as I told her, for I was afraid lest she should be too fast in going through it, and cause herself more damage so than she got of nourishment. But I had no need to fear at all, and Lorna could not help laughing at me for thinking that she had no self-control. Some creatures require a deal of food, I myself among the number, and some can do with very little, making no doubt the best of it. I have often noticed that the plumpest and most perfect women never eat so hard and fast as the skinny and three-cornered ones. These last be often ashamed of it, and eat most when the men be absent. Hence it came to pass that Lorna, being the loveliest of all maidens, had as much as she could do to finish her own half a pie, whereas Guinea Carfax, though generous more than greedy, ate of hers without winking, after finishing the brown loaf, and then I begged to know the meaning of this state of things. The meaning is sad enough, said Lorna, and I see no way out of it. We are both to be starved until I let them do what they like with me. That is to say, until you choose to marry Carver Doone and be slowly killed by him? Slowly, no, John, quickly. I'd hate him so intensely that less than a week would kill me. No doubt of that, said Gwenny. Oh, she hates him nicely then, but not half so much as I do. I told them that this state of things could be endured no longer on which point they agreed with me, but saw no means to help it. For even if Lorna could make up her mind to come away with me and live at Plowers Barrows Farm under my good mother's care, as I had urged so often, behold the snow was all around us, heaped as high as mountains, and how could any delicate maiden ever get across it? Then I spoke with a strange tingle upon both sides of my heart, knowing that this understanding was a serious one for all, and might burn our farm down. If I warrant to take you safe, and without much fright or hardship, Lorna, will you come with me? To be sure I will, dear, said my beauty, with a smile and a glance to follow. I have small alternative to starve or go with you, John. Guinea, have you courage for it? Will you come with your young mistress? Will I stay? cried Guinea, in a voice that settled it. And so we began to arrange about it, and I was much excited. It was useless now to leave it any longer. If it could be done at all, it could not be too quickly done. It was the counselor who had ordered, after all other schemes had failed, that his niece should have no food until she would obey him. He had strictly watched the house, taking turns with Carver to ensure that none came nigh in bearing fruit or comfort, 
but this evening they had thought it needless to remain on guard and it would have been impossible because themselves were busy offering high festival to all the valley in right of their own commandership and guinea said that nothing made her so nearly mad with appetite as the account she received from a woman of all the dishes preparing nevertheless she had answered bravely go and tell the counsellor and go and tell the carver who sent you to spy upon us that we shall have a finer dish than any set before em. and so in truth they did although so little dreaming of it for no doom that was ever born however much of a carver might vie with our annie for man's meat now while we sat reflecting much and talking a good deal more in spite of all the cold for i was never in a hurry to go when i had lorna with me she said in her silvery voice which always led me so along as if i were a slave to a beautiful bell now john we are wasting time dear you have praised my hair till it curls with pride and my eyes till you cannot see them even if they are brown diamonds which i have heard for the fiftieth time at least though i never saw such a jewel don't you think it is high time to put your snowshoes john certainly lord i answered till we have settled something more i was so cold when i came in and now i am as warm as a cricket and so are you you lively soul though you are not upon my hearth yet remember john said lorna nesting for a moment to me the severity of the weather makes a great difference between us and you must never take advantage i quite understand all that dear and the harder it freezes the better while that understanding continues now do try to be serious i'll try to be serious and i have been trying fifty times and could not bring you to it john although i am sure the situation as the counsellor says at the beginning of a speech the situation to say the least is serious enough for anything come grinny imitate him guinea was famed for her imitation of the counsellor making a speech and she began to shake her hair and mount upon a footstool but i really could not have this though even lorna ordered it the truth was that my darling maiden was in such wild spirits at seeing me so unexpected and at the prospect of release and of what she had never known quiet life and happiness that like a warm and loving nature she could scarcely control herself come to this frozen window john and see them light the stack fire they will little know who looks at them now be very good john you'll stay in that corner dear and i will stand on this side and try to breathe yourself a peephole through the lovely spears and banner oh you don't know how to do it i must do it for you breathe three times like this and that and then you rub it with your fingers before it has time to freeze again all this she did so beautifully with her lips put up like cherries and her fingers bent half back as only girls can bend them and her little waist thrown out against the white of the snowed 
up window that i made her do it three times over and i stopped her every time and let it freeze again so that she might be the longer now i knew that all her love was mine every bit as much as mine was hers yet i must have her to show it dwelling upon every proof lengthening out all certainty perhaps the jealous heart is loath to own a life worth twice its own be that as it may i know that we thawed the window nicely and then i saw far down the stream or rather down the bed of it for there was no stream visible a little form of fire arising red and dark and flickering presently it caught on something and went upward boldly and then it struck into many forks and then it fell and rose again do you know what all that is john asked lorna smiling cleverly at the matter of my staring how on earth should i know papists burn protestants in the flesh and protestants burn papists in effigy as we mark them lorna are they going to burn any one tonight <laughs> no dear i must rid you of these things i see that you are bigoted the dunes are firing dunkery bacon to celebrate their new captain but how could they bring it here through the snow if they have sledges i can do nothing they brought it before the snow began the moment poor grandfather was gone even before his funeral the young men having none to check them began at once upon them they had always bore a grudge against it not that it ever did them harm but because it seemed so insolent can't a gentleman go home without a smoke behind him i have often heard them saying and though they have done it no serious harm since they threw the firemen on the fire many many years ago they have often promised to bring it here for their candle and now they have done it ah oh, now look the tar is kindled though lorna took it so in joke i looked upon it very gravely knowing that this heavy outrage to the feelings of the neighborhood would cause more stir than a hundred sheep stolen or a score of houses sacked not of course that the bacon was of the smallest use to any one neither stopped anybody from stealing nay rather it was like the parish nil which begins when all is over and depresses all the survivors yet i knew that we valued it and were proud and spoke of it as a mighty institution and even more than that our vestry had voted within the last two years seven shillings and sixpence to pay for it in proportion with other parishes and one of the men who attended to it or at least who was paid for doing so was our jim slocum's grandfather however in spite of all my regrets the fire went up very merrily blazing red and white and yellow as it leaped on different things and the light danced on the snow drifts with a mystic lilac hue i was astonished at its burning in such mighty depths of snow beginning said that the wicked men had been three days hard at work clearing 
as it were, a cockpit for their fire to have its way, and now they had a mighty pile which must have covered a five land yards square, heaped up to a godly height and eager to take fire. In this I saw a great obstacle to what I wished to manage, for when this pyramid should be kindled thoroughly and pouring light and blazes round, would not all the valley be like a white room full of candles? Thinking this, I was half inclined to abide my time for another night, and then my second thoughts convinced me that I would be a fool in this. For lo, what an opportunity! All the dunes would be drunk, of course, in about three hours' time, and getting more and more in drink as the night went on. As for the fire, it must sink in about three hours or more, and only cast uncertain shadows friendly to my purpose. And then the outlaws must cower around it as the cold increased on them, helping the way of the liquor, and their jollity in the noise would be cheered as a false alarm. Most of all, and which decided once for all my action, when these wild and reckless villains should be hot with ardent spirits, what was door or wall to stand betwixt them and my Lorna? This thought quickened me so much that I touched my darling reverently, and told her in a few short words how I hoped to manage me. Sweetest, in two hours' time I shall be again with you keep the bar up and have guinea ready to answer anyone you are safe while you are dining dear and drinking heathen and all that stuff and before they have done with that i shall be again with you have everything you care to take in in a very little compass and guinea must have no baggage i shall knock loudly and then wait a little and then knock twice very softly with this I folded her in my arms, and she looked frightened at me, not having perceived her danger, and then I told Guinea over again what I had told her mistress. But she only nodded her head and said, Young man, go and teach thy grandmother. End of chapter 43 Recording by Daisy 55